This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Don't give up. Don't give up. I didn't. I mean, I was infatuated with watching cases upon cases of these cases solved after years and years. It's, I haven't given up. I've, I've held out hope every day, every day. You know, I think this this whole story is also sort of a story of, of never giving up. I mean, the detective never gave up. These families never gave up. I mean, the families were calling her, too, through the years. Did he ever try to figure out why himself? Um, yeah, he said he's thought about these cases um, over the last 30 years. Um, but he, he, he just doesn't, he doesn't understand why he did it. He just... He thinks it was a bad period of time in his life. I believe that this man is uh, very evil. I never thought that my father's murder was this man's first crime. I'm extremely grateful for the closure for the other families. In the early 1990s, a killer was on the loose in the St. Louis area. Christine Byers is a reporter at KSDK-TV in St. Louis. She says the first victim was found in March of 1990. The body of a 19-year-old woman named Robin Meehan was found um, along a rural highway in a place called Silex, Missouri, which is pretty far away from, I would say about 40, 45-minute drive from St. Louis. Um, Her body was found between two mattresses that was on the side of the road. Um, She had been strangled and her hands were bound. And um, one of the most tragic things about this case is that she had given birth to her second child just two weeks before her murder. A few months later, another body was discovered. In June, inside a rubber trash can on a sidewalk in the city of St. Louis. Um, And that was the body of 40-year-old Donna Reitmeyer. Um, At the time of her death, she left behind three adult daughters. A third victim was found early the next year, in February of 1991. Along the side of a road in a place called O'Fallon, Missouri, and that was the body of Sandy Little. Um, Her family had reported her missing from that Cherokee Street stroll in September of 1990. And she was, uh, again, her remains were found in February She was 21 years old. She had a nine-month-old son, and her body was found in a dresser that had the drawers bottomed out, and a wooden box of sorts was built around it. And so a man on his way to work saw this sort of odd, large box on the side of the roadway and reported it, and inside they found um, her body. And again, with decomposition, they were not able to determine cause and manner of death. Then in October of 1991, a fourth victim, 27-year-old Brenda Pruitt. This time inside a plastic trash can on the side of the road um, in a place called Maryland Heights, a suburb of of St. Louis. She had been strangled or smothered. Uh, Her family reported her missing in May of 1990, and she was 27 years old. The victims were all found in different locations in three different counties. So O'Fallon is in a different county called St. Charles County. Maryland Heights is in North St. Louis County. Um, there And the uh, body of Robin, the first body that was found, was in Lincoln County. So these counties are all, they kind of border each other. Um, but they're a good 
you know, 30, 40 minute drive to different, the different locations. It was determined that all four victims had been last seen in an area known as the Cherokee Street Stroll in St. Louis. The one thing all of these victims had in common, in addition to their remains being put into sort of packages or containers, if you will, was the fact that they all were last seen and missing from the Cherokee Street Stroll. And at the time, investigators believed at least three of the cases were connected. Investigators definitely thought that at least three of the cases, Robbins, Sandy's, and Brenda's were connected um, to the same killer because, again, all three of these women went missing from the same area. Um, They were involved in the same occupation. They were pretty close in age, and again, their their remains were put in sort of packages or containers. Um, They did not necessarily connect the murder of Donna Wright-Meyer, who was 40 years old, to these other three right away. Police also had a suspect in mind. Because he was known to assault and rob um, women that he would pick up. And so he was very feared among the women of the Cherokee Street Stroll. And for a very long time, he was thought to be the main suspect. But at the time and in the following years, there wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. And the cases went unsolved. Until in 2003, a new detective started looking into them. Detective Jody Weber joined the O'Fallon Police Detective Bureau in 2003. And when she joined the Detective Bureau in 2003, the case of Sandy Little uh, was the O'Fallon Police Department's case in all of this. And it really piqued her interest. Well, when I first started in the Detective Bureau, um, I would always hear the older detectives talking about this case. I mean, obviously, it was only over a little over 10 years at that point. And I, it piqued my interest because I got into law enforcement um, to work these type of cases. So I started looking at the reports and the pictures, and it piqued my interest in it. And so my first question was, has these cases ever been tested for DNA? And I was told no. So she collected all the evidence from the from Sandy Little's case as well as the first case, uh, Robin Myhan's case in Lincoln County, and she sent it to a crime lab to be tested for DNA, and that was in 2008, and it got some very disappointing news that she sent over 20 pieces of evidence, and none of them came up with any DNA whatsoever. So that was in 2008. How did you feel at that point with coming back with no DNA? Uh, I It didn't bother me too much because I knew something eventually was going to come of this. Because um, especially with the evidence from Lincoln County, um, it was great evidence. And I, I believe something eventually would come from that. Um, obviously, with the advancements in DNA, you know, anything was possible. You don't, you don't give up at that point? No. Detective Weber kept at it, calling the crime lab as often as she could to see if there were any updates. It would take 14 years to get the news she'd been waiting to hear. She got a call from the crime lab saying they were able to get a partial DNA profile from some of the evidence. And the detective was very excited about this because, as we said earlier, she really thought she had her man, this uh, man who was known to be violent with um, sex workers in that area, for a long time. Well, there was an individual that was named and he, uh, they looked at him pretty hard because he 
did not have a good relationship with the prostitutes in St. Louis. Um, all the prostitutes were scared of him. Um, uh, uh, he really, he robbed a couple of them. He beat them. Um, he did not have a good reputation with them. So when the investigators started looking at these cases, that's the first person they focused on. And there was a lot of circumstantial things that seemed to link to him. So she took that partial profile, um, which it was not enough to put in the criminal database known as CODIS. With a partial profile, you need to have a full profile in order to do that. So she took what she had and she compared it against the main suspect she had and, and several others that she said she found mentioned in the files. And it came back that it was not a match. It was pretty disappointing to find out that he wasn't he wasn't the match. You were probably pretty shocked. I was very shocked. Yeah, I thought for sure he was our guy. And he knows he knows he's been a suspect all these years or a person of interest in these cases. So, and he is still around in the St. Louis area. She really thought she had everything she needed with that pro partial profile because she really thought she had her main suspects um, identified. So when that didn't turn out, she really felt lost because there were no other names in the files that she could run it against. And, um, you know, she thought it was just going to be more of a waiting game to see when or if they could get a full DNA profile from the evidence and actually put it into CODIS. And then who knew if it would be even in CODIS? So... Um, it was a pretty devastating moment for her and the whole investigation. So obviously I was pretty disappointed in that. And uh, they didn't stop. The folks at the St. Charles County Crime Lab did excellent work. And they continued and tested more pieces of evidence. And lo and behold, they did get a match. So when they put it into CODIS, um, they got a hit. And she was absolutely floored when she found out who it was and started digging into his past. I mean, his name was nowhere in any of the files, any of the reports, any of anything from that time. I mean, she said, you know, 50, 60 detectives at least worked these cases. And there were a lot of leads, a lot of suspects, but his name was nowhere to be found he was absolutely, completely off the radar. The man's name was Gary Muehlberg, and Detective Weber would soon learn he'd been convicted of a 1993 murder in the St. Louis area. So in February of 1993, a man named uh, Kenneth Doc Atchison went to the home that belonged to a man named Gary Muehlberg to buy a car from him. And he had $6,000 of cash on him and, of course, was very eager to buy a Cadillac and uh, he was never seen again, never seen alive again after that transaction. Um, Doc Atchison was the father of two um, adult children, and his son got very, very involved in his case and his disappearance because police were very much thinking, you know, this is an adult man. He, how do you know if he's really missing? If he left with $6,000 of cash, apparently, one of the detectives said it to the family at one time, boy, that'll buy you a lot of sunshine, that kind of money. So frustrated because the family knew that he would never just take off like that. Um, they got another police department involved, and 45 days after Doc Atchison was last seen alive, 
um, the police were able to go into uh, the home and found his body in a makeshift coffin, um, badly decomposed, and he died with some significant violence. Um, He had been strangled. There was a ligature used. uh, He was shot. He had been beaten. um, And so the uh, homeowner was arrested and convicted of that murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Detective Weber continued doing her homework, learning all she could about Gary Muehlberg. What she heard was that he was very arrogant. He thought he was better than everybody, thought he knew more than everybody. In fact, I went out to interview um, some people that lived in the neighborhood where he once lived in a St. Louis suburb. And I found a family that had lived in their home for about 60 years. So they remembered him, especially because they remember the body being taken out of there in 1993 of Doc Atchison. So they were familiar with him. They were, they remembered him. And what they told me was the same thing, that he was very arrogant, very full of himself. And they recalled an, an occasion where this um, family on the block was having some work done in their backyard. And they had hired a professional person to do the work. And that um, Mr. Muehlberg went over there and was telling the guy he was doing it all wrong and how he should do it and all this stuff. And, you know, the neighbors said, everybody couldn't believe what he was saying and what he was doing because that was the professional. You know, what did Gary know compared to the to the man who was actually hired to do the job? And they just remember him being very, very rude in that way um, and very to himself. And they also said that they do remember a lot of women going into that house. And, um, you know, upon hearing that he's suspected of killing uh, them they were shocked. I mean, they. The one neighbor said, "What was I supposed to? I just thought he had a lot of girlfriends. I didn't. I didn't know what was going on there." Everybody said he was, you know, full of himself. Um, he thought he was better than everyone else. Um, so that that's the impression I got. Um, nothing that, you know, when I pulled up his picture through Missouri Department of Corrections, I was shocked by the person I saw. You know, he just looked like a typical grandpa. You know, he was not the monster that I was expecting to see. She talked about the first time she met with him, you know, her heart was pounding. This is somebody she had been, you know, searching for for so long. And she was really nervous that he wouldn't open up to her and that it wouldn't go well. And lo and behold, he talked to her that first meeting for an hour. The moment he walked in the door... I was very excited. I've waited 14 years to talk to this individual. So for him to sit down in front of me, I, I was just worried he didn't want to talk to me. Obviously, that was my first you know, feeling is he, he didn't want anything to do with me. But that wasn't the case. Um, he sat down and talked to me for an hour. And it was a good feeling, at least being having him open up to me. Obviously, he didn't confess that first interview. Um, but he wanted to know what I knew or why I was there. You know, after 32 years, I told him it was a cold case from the early 90s, and he wanted to know why I was there. Why, after all this time, did I want to talk to him? So I think he was fishing for information during that first interview. Um, But it was definitely, uh, you know, built a rapport between the two of us. She said, you know, one of the things that they talked about a lot was closure, and he talked about the one of the only times he got emotional, she said, was 
when they were talking about his brother that died in Vietnam. She said he was very emotional recalling all of that. And she said she kind of like latched on to that too and tried to appeal to, you know, didn't it mean a lot for your family to have closure and know what happened to him? And apparently he said, no, what gave us closure was being able to bury him. So that didn't, that line of questioning and that line of, you know, rapport building didn't go exactly as she hoped it would. But he kept talking to her. Um, He wanted to know exactly what she was there for, of course, you know, a detective from the St. Louis area coming to talk to him about cold cases. So she said she had his DNA and he he knew he was caught. And uh, she said his main concern right off the bat was the death penalty. So we talked about that. Um, so after, you know, he was done talking during that first interview, uh, I wanted to come back and talk to the prosecutors about what we can do about that. And they all agreed they would not seek the death penalty uh, with his full confession. And upon giving him those letters, she went to go visit him. And he then said, okay, let's get on with it. He claims he doesn't remember a lot of details. Um, He describes this as a dark time in his life. So he could not give a whole lot of details. He, he gave us information, but he couldn't really remember which was which victim. So I, at that first, or that when we first talk, started talking about the murders, I did give him a little reminders of what happened during that particular case to kind of help refresh his memory. Because at the time, I didn't know how many victims we're talking about. I don't know how many victims, you know, he has killed. And they talked for three hours about the murders. Um, She said that he definitely recalled a few details that only the killer would know, um, but that he didn't really recall everything and had to be sort of prompted to remember certain things at certain times. You know, he didn't, uh, for example, he didn't remember their names. He only knew their street names and that sort of thing. But um, she said that, you know, he was very concerned about being portrayed as a monster. Yeah, so he was talking about, will his confession bring closure to the families? And I said, I, sh- I certainly hope so. And he, he is really worried about that. He even mentioned that Sandra Little, one of the victims, um, he knew that she had a son. We had talked about that. And he wants to know if this will help him. And I said, I certainly hope so. And I asked him, is there anything you would like for me to tell um, Sanders' son? And, you know, he went on to say that he doesn't know if there's anything he could say that will help him get closure, but he's certainly sorry for what he's done. And at one point, he did look down at my body camera and said, I am sorry. In that three-hour meeting, he said that he picked up all the women from the Cherokee Street Stroll brought them back to his home, and that he actually did kill them all in his home. Um, Some of the bodies he would keep for a period of time on his property before disposing of them, and others he disposed of sort of right away. Um, You know, another thing, too, in that that three-hour confession, the the conversation was limited to the only the three victims that were connected to him at that time, which was, again, Robin Myhan, Sandy Little, and Barbara Pruitt. And so that day she left getting confessions to those three cases. 
A few days after that initial meeting with Gary Muehlberg, Detective Weber got a call from her department and learned that he'd sent her a letter. And she was like, oh my gosh, open it and take pictures of what the letter says and send it to me right now when she was on her family vacation. Well, in that letter, he confesses to two more murders. One, he describes where he disposed of the two bodies. Uh, Immediately, I recognized the one case because there was always suspicion that he might be connected to that case. Well, he confessed in that letter that he's responsible for that murder as well. And that's Donna Reitmeyer. That's correct. And there was a fifth victim who he claims is his last victim, whose body he says he put inside of a metal barrel and left at a self-serve car wash. Well, he did confess to a fifth murder where he says that he disposed of the young lady in a metal barrel with a spring-type lid on top, and he left her body in a self-serve car wash. He says on Natural Bridge. Um, We have tried to look into that. We have not been able to identify that victim at this point. That body is still a mystery. The detective has not been able to figure out which case that's connected to. She is fearful that when the body was found, the police may have dismissed this as some sort of an overdose situation where people were trying to get rid of a body and not view this as a homicide because she has not been able to find any homicide reports, any cold case reports of a body being found outside of a car wash. Where he describes of where he disposed of this body um, in this particular car wash, we were able to get hold of the original owners back in, ni- in the early 90s. Is actually a son of the owner. And he did recall a body being dumped at his um, father's other car wash location in Pagedale. So we have looked into that. Um, We are not able to find any information about that death in Pagedale. And she also found a Pagedale police detective, which is the suburb of St. Louis where they believe the body was found, who recalled a body being found there but didn't remember any additional details in terms of how it was categorized and whatever came of it. Just last week, investigators and prosecutors from three St. Louis area counties made the announcement. Gary Muehlberg has been charged in the murders of the four women who were killed in 1990 and 1991. Just hours ago, prosecutors charged a man they say murdered at least four women more than 30 years ago. Gary Muehlberg is charged with killing the women between 1990 and 1991 and then putting their bodies inside containers or packages. The reason why they got these answers today all these years later are for two reasons, technology and the dedication of detectives. Doc Atchison, Sandra Little, Robin Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, and Donna Reitmeyer. Today is is a culmination of uh, many, many years uh, of, uh, first of all, heartache for the victims, uh, families of the victims, I should say. Uh, We're going on over 30 years uh, that these murders have been unsolved. Um, and there's a lot of family members in the room uh, today, and, and I would address uh, those of you uh, who are family members of the victims. Uh, it may have taken a while, but, uh, but your family member was not forgotten. Uh, I'd like to pay a particular tribute to uh, Detective Sergeant Jody Weber of the O'Fallon Police Department. 
Uh, Jody is the, the person who single-handedly resurrected uh, this cold case. Cold cases are never dead. They just go cold. And sometimes it takes the leadership and the intelligence and the dedication of a particular officer to lift this back up and bring people's attention back uh, to solving these, uh, these crimes that uh, for 30 plus years have been unsolved. I recently had the honor, along with a number of other investigators, to meet with family members of three of our victims. There was a mother, a brother, a sister, a granddaughter, a boyfriend, and other relatives that were in the room that day. And the message that we had for them is that we had not forgotten about their family members. We hadn't forgotten about these cases and that even after 30 years, we were still working trying to, uh, trying to solve these crimes. Did he have any remorse? Absolutely. I think he, he did have remorse and he, he, I think, is hesitant to tell us everything because of that. I, I get the impression that he's um, holding back for the fact that he doesn't want to be portrayed as that monster. That he, he doesn't, he's not proud of the things he did during those years. So yes, he has, he does have remorse. Um, when I asked him why he committed these murders, he says he doesn't know in his own mind why he did them. And he, he sure can't tell us at this point. Life for Gary Muehlberg right now is really no different than it has been for the last 30 or so years um, in terms of he is still incarcerated, he is still in a Missouri prison, um, and he is still serving life without parole. So it's just the fact that, you know, this other side of him, this sort of monster serial killer, you know, side of him, if you will, has now been exposed. And um, that was something that he was very concerned about in his discussions with Detective Weber. I mean, he said, you know, to her at one point, you don't think this is like a made-for-TV movie or anything, or you don't, you know, I really am not a monster, and, and I don't want to be portrayed as a monster. Um, but you know what? To the victims' families, that's exactly what he is. So what do you think was the key moment or the key piece of all of this that made him decide to confess? I believe that he knows he's not going to get the death penalty. You know, he's 73 years old. He's in poor health. He's, he's not going to live to even see the death penalty, even if it was, uh, was an option. So I believe he wants to come clean after all these years. He said in the interviews, you know, I've been thinking about these for 30-some years. Um, I feel better that I can get it off my chest now and I can do easier time. Did he ever say something in his childhood that traumatized him, led him to this dark place in his life, or did he have any explanation as to why he got into this dark place? No, he said he had a great family and a great upbringing. Um, he has no reasons as to why this occurred. Um, he said that he, you know, had was married twice, and I thought maybe, you know, this, during the second divorce, right before these murders occurred, maybe it was a hard um, time for him and a difficult divorce, but he says it wasn't. So really there is no explanation at this point as to why he did these murders. He is 73 years old and he is in kidney failure, um, had prostate cancer a few years ago. Um, but, you know, a big part of this was 
do we pursue the death penalty? Missouri is a death penalty state, and certainly um, the victims in in these cases, the families very much wanted the death penalty pursued. But that could take 10 years before it comes to fruition. So that's why the prosecutors um, agreed to basically, you know, another life without parole sentence for him in exchange for a full confession in this situation because they just they just don't believe he's going to live long enough to be put to death. Um, and they're not even sure if he'll live long enough to be convicted of these charges. He has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder because that fifth uh, that first fifth murder that he confessed to, again, remains a mystery. So without being able to pin that case to him right now, they have him on four counts of first-degree murder. Um, but it's he's not expected to live long enough to, uh, to be convicted. Investigators say they are still trying to determine if Gary Muehlberg could be linked to other cases. We are still continuing to investigate this case. Uh, the charges we've announced today may just be the first of many more charges uh, to come. So we are still uh, in communication with the defendant. He is still cooperating at this point. Uh, and so information continues to come in. And as that comes in, I think it may take a long time, uh, but we hope that we'll gather enough information to where we can start to put those pieces together. Do you think we know all of his secrets? No. I think there's more for him to tell us. And I'm hoping he can get to that point where he can tell us everything. You know, it's been a heartbreaking few days um, and weeks, the time I've spent um, finding the victims' families and the survivors of all of this. All of the victims were mothers. They left just infants in some cases behind. In the case of Donna Reitmeyer, she had three adult daughters um, who still struggle with her murder, all of these murders, that all this time later. They were extreme interruptions in the lives of their children and in their families. Um, you know, their parents, a lot of their parents died before finding out who did this. Um, and just uh, so much heartache to listen to, you know, from families just second-guessing themselves all this time. We could have done more, we should have done more to what could I have done differently and just overwhelming guilt. And um, certainly children left to grow up without their mothers and knowing these the terrible things that happened to their mothers. You know, families having to sort out um, adoption situations, giving these children up for adoption. Some of them were. Some of them were put in the custody of their, of their fathers or foster families. Um, it, it was just a mess, this, this unbelievable path of destruction and real, real holes in a lot of people's hearts. After learning about the man who's now charged with killing their sister Sandy Little in 1991, Barb Stunt and Geneva Val Palomino paid a visit to the grave where their sister is buried. They talked about the pain of losing a family member at such a young age and learning that Gary Muehlberg is now charged with her murder. When they called us last month, like I said, we found out about six weeks ago. They called us to the police uh, the courthouse in O'Fallon and told us that they had identified him. And then they showed us his picture. And like Geneva said, I realize that he's in prison. So yes, he is denied his freedom, but he looks healthy and happy. He was smiling in the picture that they took. And, you know, all that's going through my head is you look so normal. You don't even look like you're in a prison. You look like you could be Somebody's sitting out on somebody's deck, 
having the grandkids play at your feet. And all I kept thinking is, why, why would you do that? What, what would motivate you to do this? And knowing that he probably is not going to tell us, that's very disheartening. And, you know, it just, it, it, it fills me with rage to a certain point because, you know, you've taken her away from not only her sisters and brothers and mother, but from her son. You know, this, this child has been raised without his mother and his mother would have been his fiercest protector in life. I want people to realize that these girls were daughters and sisters and mothers. All three of them were a mother. And they were more than just girls that were out street walking. They all had their own reasons. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was because they were trying to get milk and formula for their babies. Yeah, you know? it doesn't mean and, that they don't deserve to live. Right. They deserve to be able to make their choices regardless. Hey, True Crime Chronicles listeners, Reed Remond here joining Will to wrap up this episode. And before I ask a couple questions, I wanted to lay out a quick timeline of the events here just to keep everything straight. So Gary Muehlberg has confessed to killing five sex workers between 1990 and 1991. Doc Atchison was then found murdered in 1993. And then it was in 1995 when Muehlberg went to prison and he's been in prison since. So there are two windows of time here that I'm curious about the first is Muehlberg's life prior to 1990. And then secondly, what else he might have been doing during that four-year window between this initial string of killings and his imprisonment. Let's start with that earlier time frame. What else can you tell us about Muehlberg's background? Detective Weber mentioned he'd been married twice. Did he have children? What do we know? He was married twice. He had three kids. Two are deceased. He still has a, a son who's living in Kansas that he has no relationship Christine Byers tells us he has one ex-wife who's still alive, who he has no relationship with either. His daughter uh, never talked to him again after the 1993 murder conviction. And in fact, she died just days before the recent murder charges were filed and publicly announced. So this daughter, who was estranged, never found out and died just days before this news. What about any prior criminal history before the first of these murders that Muehlberg is now charged with. Yeah, Christine Byers asked Detective Weber about that, and Gary Muehlberg actually has a conviction going all the way back to 1972 for a kidnapping, rape, and murder in Kansas. And he actually served time in the penitentiary for those crimes. The victim was at home babysitting alone when she was attacked, according to Detective Weber. So, again, you're asking about the, these different time frames of his life. That happened back in 1972. It was almost 20 years later that these 1990-1991 murders took place. Looking at that second time frame, 1991 to 1995, and I guess this applies to probably before 1990 as well, but do we know what Muehlberg was up to during those four years? Do we know what he did for a living? Well, he told police that he worked at a school in the St. Louis area for a period of time, a school for special needs children, he did maintenance work and rehabbing houses. Detective Weber says that appears to be his primary occupation, doing rehabbing of houses and construction work. We do mention in the episode that he actually studied psychology in grad school, so he may have had that in mind as a career at one point in time. But his primary work, again, was, was maintenance work, odd jobs, rehabbing houses. All right. Thank you, Will. And thanks as well to Christine Byers at KSDK in St. Louis. Any of our listeners who want to learn more about this case, 
Check out all of her reporting at ksdk.com. And thanks for listening to True Crime Chronicles. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.